Well, good morning and welcome. Um, for those of you who are visiting, uh, I'm beginning a, a series on Mark. Last week was, What is the Gospel? The Gospel in the Gospels. And we covered what, the important question is, what is a gospel? This week, uh, what we're going to do now is dive in sort of an introductory to the whole book. Um, it's, it's not like a 30,000-foot view of the book itself. It's more the background. Why was this book written? Who wrote it? And why should we read it? Which all seem like important questions if you're going to read the Gospel of Mark. So before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for your word. We know that uh, it is living and active. We know that it is good for building up the body, for uh, writing the law in our hearts. As Joel said this morning, we know, Lord, that you are ministering to us through your word. And we pray, Father, as we open it now, that you would convict us and comfort us in exactly the way that each of us needs, and that you would be glorified in all that is said and heard and thought about what is preached this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, I was quite um, shocked to find out that there is a solid tradition within the church, it's widely held among many Bible scholars, that Mark, the author of our gospel, is actually the rich young ruler. I, I, I was rather surprised by that. The theory is that Mark is the rich young ruler who Jesus said, sell everything and follow me. Now, there are a number of things that suggest this within the text, but as Paul said, I want to be very clear here, this is I speaking and not the Lord. Okay, this, is, this is a tradition in the church. Uh, Doug Wilson, I, I heard him give his talk on this, and he said, please don't go to the stake over what I'm teaching you now. <laughs> this should not be the making of any martyrs. But there are a couple of interesting thoughts uh, behind this. I, I want to stop and, and look at it uh, j just for a moment. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. This is what we read. When he realized this, he went to the house of uh, Peter. Peter realized. Uh, Peter has just busted out of jail. Uh, he realized this. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Now, this establishes in many people's mind how rich they are, because if they have a house big enough to fit all of the saints at the time, that's going to be a pretty big house. And if you have servants, that indicates that you have some wealth. Okay, so John Mark is very wealthy. He comes from a wealthy family. Fascinating. Now, furthermore, though Matthew and Luke both record the story of the rich young ruler, only Mark makes one important observation. And that, if you go to Mark chapter 10, this is a lot of jumping around this morning. You, you can just sit there and enjoy me reading it to you, unless you're a serious barian, and then you can follow along. Chapter 10, verse 21, this is what we read. And he said to him, Teacher, all those I have kept from my youth. This is the rich young ruler speaking. Chapter 10, verse 20. To 21. And the rich young ruler said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Mark is the only one who mentions that fact. Now, that's fascinating to me. Why would Mark tell us this detail? Um, now, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, we all know, is John the Apostle. But, but to have that note next to your name, you, you were one that Jesus loved personally. There's not that many people in the Gospels who are referred to that way. I know Jesus loves everybody, but there's not that many human beings that he actually are listed as people he loves personally. Lazarus is one of them, and it's his good friend. And he loves him so much, he, he, he drags him out of the grave, right? So 
these details are partially why people think John Mark, the author, is actually the rich young ruler. Now, there's one more fascinating one, and, and I think... Um, not even if you don't think it's actually the rich young ruler, there is a detail at the end of the Gospel of Mark that anyone worth their salt thinks, the commentators think this is actually John Mark wrote himself into the story. So if you go to chapter 14, one of the oddest details in, in any of the Gospels is found in chapter 14 of Mark, verses 51 and 52. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. <laughs> so finally, the rich young ruler realizes you really do have to give up everything to follow Jesus. <laughs> now, many people think that is so bizarre that it's got to be John Mark. Now, he's young, and if it was the rich young ruler, we clearly see that he has given up everything to follow Jesus. He's wearing one garment. He's out in the middle of the night sleeping outside with Jesus' followers. Right? If, he, if, if he, he left the rich life he had and he's following Jesus around. Okay. So this is all fun and fascinating. Uh, it was really hard not to geek out. I could have written like three more pages about this. It's fascinating to me, this kind of stuff. The literary, literary analysis, working with the original text, trying to figure it out like a, like a junior historian. But nothing that I am saying in all of this is a litmus test for orthodoxy. None of this speculation is going to ever comfort me at someone's deathbed, right? Oh, the rich young ruler is really John Mark. Don't worry, right? I mean, <laughs> amusing as it is, it does not in any way lighten my mind with, with the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we are to pull on the threads of the gospel of Mark that can be proven, we do find a tightly woven fabric of divinely serendipitous comfort and understanding, Okay. Mark wrote what Peter preached about what Jesus did, and because of that, we can be certain that it is well-organized and true. Right? Setting aside this odd tradition, there's a lot of different things like this John Mark and the rich young ruler thing we're not going to be distracted on. I want to go and historically and interpretively look at the Gospel of Mark, and, and it really does establish not just that it is a good account of the gospel, but it, it teaches us a great deal about how the inspiration of, of Scripture itself works. Mark wrote what Peter preached about what Jesus did, and because of that, we can be certain that it is well-organized and true. Now, the name of this sermon is The Gospel According to Mark, According to Peter, According to Christ. <laughs> and to a certain extent, all the books in the Bible should actually be uh, written down that way. That, it, that would be really long titles. Um, but this is really what we're talking about. Mark wrote what Peter preached about what Jesus did. And all along, it's really Jesus who's writing the book of Mark. This book is uniquely designed through this book. This book right here is uniquely designed through many authors with many intended historical recipients to be the universal source of life, truth, and understanding. I love this book for this reason. If you go back and you read the, the, the account of Ruth, it's full of all kinds of weird his, historical notes there about a culture that I have is so far from me, right? Like the threshing of the, the threshing floor and they're gleaning. And every time I read that book, I got to look up a bunch of words. And what I find fascinating is that God is working through that text for a specific audience to teach the whole world about what he did to bring the Messiah in, in, into the world. Now, that's what I like about the Gospel of Mark. It's a New Testament account that we can see directly the lineage of it. 
and, and how solidly and clearly and profoundly it was preserved to teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. Modern critical enthusiasts take the similarities between Matthew's account and Mark's account to mean that one of them is the summary of the other. But that doesn't hold up on any level of scrutiny. Mark was the first gospel written based on Peter's sermons compiled for a Christian audience in southern Italy and was immediately ordered to be read aloud in worship services throughout the wider church. So Mark sits down as a pastor and he writes an account of Jesus to comfort the Christians in southern Italy and immediately all the Christians are like, we're going to start reading that in worship service. And that's what I'm talking about. Mark didn't sit down and think, oh, you know what? 3,000 years from now, the Christians are going to need to know what happened. So I'm going to write a book. That's not what happened. He had a very specific audience in mind. And God was working through him to not just be speaking to Christians in southern Italy in the first century, but to be speaking to you sitting here now on what would have been the edge of the world in their minds. That the account witnessed by Peter preached to varying audiences by Peter, recorded by Mark, arranged for a specific audience, could match the eyewitness Matthew's account so closely, not perfectly, but so closely to be called the summary of Matthew means that its message was not transmitted the way children play the telephone game. Peter preaches all these sermons. Mark writes them down. He then writes an account, and it's so similar to what the eyewitness Matthew wrote that people think Mark is a summary of Matthew. That's fascinating to me. Now we realize that Mark, Mark was written first, and we know that Matthew didn't sit down and, and use Mark's gospel as, an, as, as like notes because Matthew didn't need to. Matthew was there. This is what, think about how God is working through these men, where the account that Mark's right is so similar to the eyewitness of Matthew's that they think it's, a, it, it's like a summary of it. That, that's fascinating to me. That doesn't just teach me about the Gospel of Mark. That teaches me about the whole Bible. That is comforting at a deathbed. That does enlighten my mind about the authority and power of Jesus Christ over what is said and not said, what is written down and not written down, what's remembered and not remembered, and even how it is phrased. Because these words that we have in this book are, in fact, the very words of God. I can't say with certainty whether Mark was the rich young ruler, but I know that what he wrote is the gospel, the joyous news that Jesus Christ is king, not just of heaven, but of earth. So to begin to understand this account of Mark's, let us consider who this Mark is who wrote the book. And, of course, uh, before tradition, it's, it's proper to start with Scripture. Who is this Mark that we're talking about? All the manuscripts that we have contain the name of Mark in the title. There, there's, at no point is there any other name at the start of it. Everyone who ever copied it out and wrote it down said, this is the account according to Mark. We know, as I read from Acts 12, that his name is John Mark. Uh, apparently he had a pen name. It's very popular amongst writers to have a pen name. He goes by Mark when he's writing things, but everyone else called him John Mark. And we know that his mother's name was Mary. We can tell that the family had some measure of wealth, given the size of the house and the presence of servants. We learn in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Barnabas, of course, was an apostle, most likely one of the original followers of Jesus who was sent out with the 70 in Luke 10.1. So Mark doesn't, isn't just copying down Peter's sermons. His cousin, who he spends a lot of time with, was there. He himself was an eyewitness. John Mark accompanied his cousin Barnabas and Paul on the very first missionary journey in Acts 12 and 13. We know that Mark was the source of a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. This is one of the more famous disputes in the Bible. Acts 15, 37 through 38 reads this. 
Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best to take with them one who had with or but but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Why might this break have occurred? Why suddenly, after the first missionary journey, does Paul not want to take Mark with them? And, and not want to take them so much so that he's willing to se- separate with Barnabas over it. That seems very strange, right? These are apostles. Aren't they above all of this stuff? Well, in Galatians 2.13, we find that Barnabas is taken in for a time by Judaizing. That, that error which asserts that Gentiles must keep the law of Moses in all of its details and become Jews before they become Christians. Furthermore, John Mark left the entourage of Paul and Barnabas, it's recorded in Acts, on their first missionary journey immediately after the first prominent Gentile is converted, and I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that's a coincidence. His cousin is a Judaizer. John Mark is a follower of Peter. He's a Judaizer, right? We all know that uh, Paul had to confront Peter about that. Peter is a Judaizer, and he's close to John Mark. And now John Mark is on a mission trip, and he's like, whoa, whoa, we're converting Gentiles, and he goes back. Now, the dispute that they're having is right after the very first church council. And we know that the church council, at the very first one, recorded in Acts chapter 15, was about Judaizing. Do Gentiles have to become Jews first? And that was a good question. It took the entire council of the church, all the apostles had to get together and decide, do they have to become Jews first? And they decided they didn't. So right after this, Paul is ready. He's like, okay, we got, we got this letter from all of the brothers, we're going to go out now and we're going to preach not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles too. And eh, I don't know if I want that John Mark guy with me because he seems to have a problem with this. Uh, in fact, Barnabas was like, I don't want to go to new churches. I, he's uncomfortable with it. He wants to go back to churches they already visited where they know they're full of Jews. <laughs> right? So you can see at the very beginning, even though the council decided what they were going to do, it, t- it took a while for people to get on board with the mission. And so for a time, Paul's like, yeah, no, I don't want that guy coming around with his Judaizing ways, messing up my work with the Gentiles. It makes a lot of sense. When you you put all the pieces together, it makes a great deal of sense. Now, the good news is that Mark was reconciled with Paul later. We read in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. That's excellent to find out. They did not stay separate over this issue. I I believe Barnabas and Peter and John Mark all came around on the idea of Judaizing for no other reason than that, I mean, clearly you can't stop the train that God is on, right? You're you're either for him or you're against him. You're either with it or you're not. So we are not told who was right in the initial dispute. That, That would have been helpful, but they don't tell us. They don't tell us who was right or who was wrong. We are told that it was resolved. Now, I went through all of this for two important reasons. I know that, that was a lot of history, that's a lot of verses, that's a lot of, but why did I go through all of that? For two very good reasons. First, nothing is new under the sun. The first century church was not perfect, and even the most prominent and righteous men that the church had ever known were clearly Presbyterians, willing to separate with good brothers over doctrine. <laughs> right? Many people make the argument that they, they were Presbyterians because they had a council. I'm like, no, they had a council, then they split up. I mean, that, they, these are Presbyterians all the way down to their boots. <laughs> it's almost too easy. This whole thing is recorded because no churchman is Jesus. <laughs> we all have feet of clay, whether your name is Paul, Peter, or Calvin. 
Secondly, it's important to establish without a doubt that John Mark is no second-rate nobody in all of this. He was on the first, very first missionary journey ever. His mother's house is a center of Christian worship. It's where they all go and pray. When, when, oh, Peter's in jail. We don't have him. Where do we go? We go to John Mark's mom's house. Right? So clearly his family is very prominent in the Christian movement. His, uh, he, he was right in the thick of the doctrinal disputes and worked to establish the church alongside the first generation, the apostles. He traveled, he labored for the gospel amongst the first generation of Christians. Now, years later, we know that Mark was with Peter at Rome. 1 Peter 5.13 says, she who is at Babylon, that's a typological name for Rome, he's referring to, he's in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, you've got to be pretty close to someone if you're, if you're going to, even though you're not his son, to be called his son. Uh, I, I know lots of older men who are great friends. Not a lot of them call me son. That's not as, as common as you would think it is. So his spiritual son, Peter's spiritual son, is John Mark. Okay? This guy is not a nobody. This is a somebody who wrote this book. The earliest sources are varied. Now we're going to get into some tradition here because we've covered the scripture portion. It's also important to know what tradition says about this. The earliest sources uh, varied geographically but consistently affirm that both Mark was close to Peter and that Mark ministered uh, a great deal in and around Rome. Now, to expand into church tradition, the first thing that we need to understand is that John Mark's nickname was Stubby Fingers. His nickname was Stubby Fingers. Uh, lots of people refer to him as Stubby Fingers. Now, that's bizarre. But there is fragments of Latin manuscripts, okay? Latin manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark, and they, and they have prologues. And we don't, all the prologue wasn't preserved, but God in his wisdom preserved the portion in a number of copies in which we understand why he was called Stubby Fingers. And this is what it says. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. Mark, who is called Stump-Fingered because he had rather small fingers in comparison with the stature of the rest of his body. <laughs> That's not something you'd read in John MacArthur's study Bible intro to the Gospel of Mark. It's so funny. I mean... Feet of clay, right? In case John Mark ever thought he a little too much of himself, we all remember him as stubby fingers. <laughs> now, Clement of Alexandria, that's in Egypt, at the end of the second century, he wrote very, uh, very confidently that Mark had not only written down everything that Peter had said with Peter's approval, but that he did the work in Rome. Irenaeus, at the same time, as uh, Clement, but in Gaul, which is France. So you got Egypt and you got France. They're not exactly close. Down there uh, in Egypt, they think it's Mark, and up in Gaul, they think it's also Mark. Irenaeus wrote that it was Mark who wrote it, and he did it in Rome, and he did it at the behest of Christians who wanted to remember what Peter was saying. Now, he didn't get the book done before Peter died. He wrote a lot of it after Peter died, is what Irenaeus tells us. So we see the trans... Oh, yeah, and this is another thing. Irenaeus, he explains where he learned this from. He learned it from a man named Polycarp. Now, if you guys don't know who Polycarp is, you should read about Polycarp. And everyone should memorize Polycarp. Polycarp, it's a weird name. But everyone should memorize the thing that he... His speech uh, uh, right before he was martyred as a Christian. Uh, they put him in with the lions, and, and he was attacked by beasts. Uh, and he gave an, an amazing speech uh, that, that was recorded. So Polycarp had Irenaeus as a student, and he told him, because he knew John Mark and knew the Apostle John, that it was Mark who had written it. 
So what I love about this is you see the transmission of important information directly from the first generation of Christians to the second and taught in writing to prosperity, posterity to all of us. You see the transmission. Irenaeus isn't just making this stuff up. He heard it from Polycarp, and Polycarp had been there. He knew John Mark. He knew the apostle John as well. As it states in the ancient Christian commentary on Mark, thus by an extraordinary coalescence of diverse testimony from widely diverse arenas. <laughs> this guy really likes to speak in a very high-flown way here. We have reliable textual evidence that the second and third generation of Christian teachers viewed Mark as echoing the narrative voice of the Apostle Paul. And that is very helpful to us, the 50th generation of Christians. Right there, within 100 years of the writing of the book, we have a lot of evidence that it is, in fact, John Mark, who was writing down what Peter preached, he, that he witnessed Jesus do. That gives me, is, is, I can't be more confident in a, in a document than that. Now, let's turn to scripture for a moment. What was read for us today was Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 44. So now what we've done is we've looked at scripture about who Mark is. We've looked at tradition about who John Mark is. And now what I'd like to do is, is, is make the connection between the gospel of Mark and the preaching of Peter. So if you go to Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 44... What you have here is a sermon, a sermon by Peter. This passage highlights Peter as the source of the material for the Gospel of Mark. Before us is a sermon that Peter delivered in Caesarea, the seat of the Roman government in Judea. I, I chose this sermon because it is a plot point outline of Mark's Gospel account. If you go through this sermon, starting, he starts with after John the Baptist, and then he goes on to describe what Jesus has done, he ends, and it is a plot point outline of the Gospel of Mark. I would, uh, the argument is that literally Mark kept that there in front of him and just used it as an outline and filled in from the other sermons that he heard Peter preach the content of this, of this message that Peter preached in Acts. Okay, I'm going to paraphrase the sermon because we already had it read for us this morning. First off, remember last week, the gospel is that Jesus is the king. And so Peter begins his account here by saying the very same thing that Jesus said. Jesus is the Lord he says. And then he goes on, beginning in Galilee after the baptism of John, which is exactly where the Gospel of Mark begins, God anointed Jesus, and that anointing is what makes him the Messiah, makes him the King, the Son of God from Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Now, Peter goes on to say, with power Jesus went around doing good works, binding Satan and plundering Satan's kingdom by delivering all those Satan had enslaved to sin and death. Peter declares himself as an eyewitness of all that Jesus did. Jesus was slain on the cross, but was resurrected by God, appearing to the disciples before commissioning them to go preach the good news to the world. The sermon and the gospel of Mark begin and end at the same points, the ministry of John the baptizer and the great commission. But did you notice the emphasis in between those two things? The emphasis in between those two things is everything that Jesus did. Everything that Jesus did. Peter's character is reflected in this sermon. Peter is not, in, is not as interested in the teaching of Jesus. For that, you must turn to Matthew and Luke. Peter is not as interested in the profound mysteries and philosophical implications of the incarnation. For that, turn to John. Peter is a passionate man of action. Peter is all about following Jesus. It's a physical journey for him of a spiritual import. 
And we know this. All through all of the gospel accounts, what, P- Peter is, is a man who almost can't help himself from doing things. He's chopping off ears. He's walking on water. He's flinging himself into the sea without even taking his robe off. He's casting nets. The, just to highlight this point, at the transfiguration, Peter's response is, could I make some tents? Right? <laughs> Heaven's opened. Uh, let's make tents. I mean, he doesn't have questions. It's like, hey, Moses, uh, how hot was that fire? I mean, he doesn't have any questions. He just wants to do something. And what you find in all of Peter's sermons is, is they're, they're almost too short. It's like, you know, Jesus is the king. He came and he did stuff. It was amazing. And I know it was amazing because I was there. And he's king. And so there you go. And that's like a sermon almost. If you compare it to what Stephen had to say in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon is very long in comparison to Peter's. Peter's sermons are terse, fast-paced, and action-oriented. Mark probably enjoyed writing them down because they were very quick and very easy to remember. Mark echoes this emphasis of Peter in his account of the gospel. Tim Keller says that the gospel of Mark, he says this is the gospel of Mark, Mark wants us to see that the coming of Jesus calls for decisive action. Jesus is seen as a man of action, moving quickly and decisively from every from event to event. There is relatively little of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Mark. Mainly, we see Jesus doing. Therefore, we can't remain neutral. We need to respond actively. That is what Mark is aiming at, partly because that is what Peter was aiming at. It's no wonder at the close of Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the audience responds with, Brothers, what should we do? That is always the reaction that Peter wanted. He always, at the end of his sermons, wanted to be asked, what ought we to do? And so when, you, when you're reading Mark, the, what should be happening while you're reading it is, what should I do now? What should I do? What should I do? Because the action that he is taking you through in the Gospel of Mark is supposed to inspire that kind of action-oriented involvement with the Messiah. Okay? If you want long explanations of the law, go to the book of, of Matthew. If you want to understand the Greek, under, the Greek philosophical understanding of the Incarnation, look at John. If you want what Jesus is light, look at John. But if you want to see a man who's on the move, it's the Gospel of Mark. That, that's what this Gospel is all about. Jesus taught the God-man is a profound mystery that reveals the heart of God, and we have other Gospel writers for that. Lightheart, Peter Lightheart wrote, For Matthew, being a disciple means holding to all the words that Jesus speaks. For Mark, discipleship involves following Jesus and doing what he does. Mark didn't transcribe the words, Mark didn't just transcribe the words of Peter. Peter's sermons were short, full of eyewitness details, tailored to specific audiences, and Mark had to to take all of that material and shape it into a narrative overview of Jesus' life. The shape of Mark is episodic, full of scenes, and and the through line is Jesus on the move. (laughs) There's no plot structure other than just Jesus is here, and then he's there, and then he's there, and he's doing that, and he's doing that, and then he's over here. And this is why all through it, you get these words show up over and over again, and, 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 and then Jesus did this, and, and then Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did that, and then he did this, and then he did that, and then he did that, and immediately did that. And that's what the book is like. I get very tired reading it. I like to read it sitting down in my armchair because I'm just, oh, man, Mark, did Jesus ever take a nap? I mean, you ever know? It's like when you watch a movie, you're like, when do these people eat or sleep? I mean, if you watch 24, they went like three seasons. The guy never even went to the bathroom. And that is what I feel like when I read this. I'm like, I'm going to go and read Matthew for a while where Jesus is just sitting down talking. 
It makes me tired. Now, I want to point out something. This is, you cannot mess around with the Word of God. Nothing is like it. Mark is, is all about Peter's message. Mark responds to this. He, too, is a man of action. You go back. He's on journeys. He's going here. He's going there. He's doing this. He's with these people. He's with those people. Go get him from there. Bring him here. You see that they're like this. But when Mark sat down to write this account, he was not thinking of us. He was thinking of the, of the saints in southern Italy whom he loved, who were under a great deal of persecution, who desperately needed to know that Jesus wasn't, had not gone away to stay away, that Jesus was present with them, that he was the Emmanuel. Now, there are a few details in it that bring out all of this. The, the Christians at the time in southern Italy were being persecuted heavily by Nero. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Nero, but this is Nero who kicked his pregnant wife to death, who was 14 at the time. This is that Nero. This is the Nero who murdered his own mother. This is the Nero who would take Christians and stick them on poles, cover them in um, some sort of flammable fluid, and light them on fire in order to, have to light his garden parties. So you're like, oh, let's go over to Nero's house and have tea. And there are Christians on poles burning to light up the, the party. This is the Nero that we're talking about. So the Christians, he hated them. He hated them because they did not honor him as the Lord. They had another Lord. And he was vengeful about that. He also, uh, and I'm convinced, personally started fires in Rome to burn the city to the ground because he wanted to rebuild it in his own image. And then what happened is he blamed the Christians. And everyone knew it wasn't them, but they persecuted them anyway. So this is, the, this is who's in charge. And the Gospel of Mark is a pastoral response to this critical situation. When Roman believers received the Gospel of Mark, they found that it spoke to the situation of the Christian community they were in, in Nero's Rome. Reduced to a catacomb existence, they read of the Lord who was driven deep into the wilderness by God himself. The detail recorded only by Mark, that in the wilderness Jesus was with the wild beasts, was filled with special meaning, special significance, for those called to enter the arena to stand in the presence of wild beasts. Because that's what Nero loved to do. Let's grab up some Christians and let's keep these lions hungry for a bit. And then because we don't have an invented football yet, what we're going to do is take the Christians and put them there and let's see what the wild animals do. And they read that their Lord was driven into the wilderness by God, his father, amidst wild beasts. Now, could you imagine how comforting that would be to them? Nothing that their Lord had experienced was different from what they had experienced themselves. Jesus' own disciples had fled from him. Now, this was an important detail for the Roman Christians who faced torture to give up the names of other Christians. Uh, we'll smash your toes until you tell us who the Christians are uh, that you're meeting with. And then what you would end up being is a Judas. And then what they would do is not murder you after that. They'd actually send you back home. And then, and then after everyone's arrested, everyone knew who it was that gave up the information. So what they, they read that Jesus, those who were treated this way, who had their friends turn them in, understood that Jesus had had suffered the same thing. In like manner, those who had gone before the tribunals and had denied that they were Christians are comforted with the, the account of Peter himself. Because if Peter can deny the Lord and that he can find grace and favor with the God, there's hope, there's hope. Because when you're there and, right, and they're putting the ax to you, they're taking a bat to you to get you to confess who the other Christians are and whether you're a Christian or not, not many of us would actually hold up. 
and, and, and the account of Peter is so, is, is a bombing, comforting, beautiful story if, if that's what you've had to suffer. So you see all of these details in this account. There's other things. In, in English translations, it, you know, he says, Mark says something, and then he translates it, it, it into another language. And, I, and for me, I always think, oh, well, he must be going from like Yiddish, <laughs> Yiddish, they didn't speak Yiddish, <laughs> Aramaic, to Hebrew or something, right? But actually what he does is he, he gives Hebrew words or names and then gives the Latin names for them. Well, Latin wasn't yet the, the, the language of the world Greek was. And so he's writing to people in a very small region who speak Latin. And so that's why he's translating the words that way. He also translates a, a sum of money into a kind of coin that they only used in Rome. So, and I mean, I think the audience that he was originally writing for was very small, very small. Lastly, the issue of Caesar's authority had been raised pointedly when Jesus was questioned concerning the payment of taxes to Rome. Jesus' response, rendered to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, had particular and intense meaning to Christians who were martyred for declaring the lordship of Jesus as the emperor. For the saints who went to Roman tribunals and denied they were Christians, they find the story of Peter profound, profoundly full of hope and forgiveness. So all of this is interesting background. Interesting information. The last thing that I want to talk about is how he wrote it. For me, this is the most fascinating as a man who loves words. But Mark does something that nobody else does. And he uses, he doesn't talk about what happened in the past tense. He talks about it in the present tense. So not only is he saying and and immediately all the time, he's constantly writing the story as if it's happening right now. And he puts these rhetorical questions in the mouths of the apostles and Jesus himself and doesn't give an answer. Because the Christians who are reading it, not only because he's moving so quickly, you just kind of get wrapped up in the story and it's present tense, and you're like, man, this Jesus, oh, gosh, Jesus is amazing. Look at everything he's doing. And then all of a sudden they're like, and, you know, he calms the storm, and they say, and who is this man? And the person reading it's Jesus, it's God, that's who it is. The, the whole story is written with this clipping pace, and then all of a sudden there's this question, and it's almost as if Mark wants you to answer it out loud. That's the Son of God is who that is. And the reason that he did this is because he wants God to be present with the Christians who are reading it. This is why there was this universal response to it. God, Jesus didn't just go away. He's present. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, he's present. It's immediate. It's not some faraway story. It's not like, oh, once upon a time in a land far, far away. <laughs> right? The beginning of the gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then he goes right into the action, and you're there in the middle. It's an action movie version of the gospel. The account that Mark drew up is characterized by simplicity and straightforwardness. John Mark chose to write with a language and style that is less elaborate and more popular. Mark's sentences are simply constructed and commonly are strung together by the conjunction and and immediately. And he uses this historical present, that, that present tense I was talking about, over 150 times. Mark's use of style and literary method involves his audience as witnesses. It puts them right into the pulse and pace of the story. Lightheart writes, Mark presents Jesus as a man of action, always on the move, a new David, the warrior. The Gospel of Mark is an action movie. For Matthew, Jesus is what he teaches. For Mark, Jesus is what he does. And it's important, it's important, if you're going to know for 
sure that he is the son of God, to know not just what he taught, but what he did. And what I love about this gospel is it is a gospel for people who are readers of the word and not doers of the word. Jesus didn't just around, the gospel is not something merely to be believed, merely to be taught and heard and thought about. It's something to be done. And when you open the gospel of Mark, that's the, it's the gospel on the move. That is why this is the gospel for this church at this time. I don't know about you, but I feel like a, a lot of my faith is sitting around and thinking about these things. I find the gospel of Mark very refreshing, and, and for the reasons I've stated, it, it gets me worked up. I find myself talking to it. It's asking me questions, I'm answering them. Uh, it gets my heart racing, in a sense. And what I want you to do is read large sections of it at a time. If you read 10, ten verses, it's not going to work. But if you read it in large sections, and Jesus is going here, and he's going there, and he's doing this, he's doing that, and look at all, and it's all good, it's all glorious, it's all for the glory of his Father, it's all demonstrating his power, it, it, it transforms you while you're reading it. This is the gospel according to Mark, according to Peter, according to Christ. It's the one Christ wanted you to have in your hands. He, he anointed his apostles, he gave them the words of life, he knew he was constructing something that would be written down very soon after the events had occurred so that we, he, sitting here, would know that they were his words, that we would be inspired and taught by them to do what he did. Right? Think about it. It's, he's the son of God, it says at the beginning, the, the beginning of the gospel of the son of God. Halfway through it, it says it's the son of God. At the end of the book, the Roman soldier says he's the son of God. And all along, it's what he's doing that demonstrates it. And, and he says at the end, go and do likewise. And that's the message for the church in every age. Go and do likewise. Well, do what? Open the Gospel of Mark, and you will know exactly what it is you're supposed to do. To love the unlovely. To not, you did not come into this church to be served, but to serve. Just like your king. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We know that it is living and breathing. We know that it is active. We know that you are ministering to us through it, and we thank you for it. I pray, Father, that we would go from here encouraged not only about the Gospel of Mark, but about Scripture itself. They are your words that, um, that about the things that you did, that you preserved in, in your church, so that we now would draw near to you. For you are a God that is not far away, but very present. And you are, you are not a God who is disinterested, but interested and active, not only in our lives, but in this world. And we pray, Father, that we would go forth and do as your son did. Amen.